Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Sabrina, for her support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, extra bonus material and a whole new series of interviews to enjoy, all for the price of a pint of beer once a month. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help the show reach a bigger audience and will be greatly appreciated. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who has conducted virtually every orchestra in the United Kingdom and many others further afield. Since 2013, he has been associate conductor Halle Pops, a role almost totally unique in the United Kingdom. It's a pleasure to welcome Stephen Bell. Steve, absolutely wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you, Mike. It's really nice to hear your voice. And you. It's been quite a few years. Um, I'm trying to remember when it was the last time I saw you. I think I might have come to watch you conduct a James Bond concert with the CBSO. And how are you coping with lockdown and quarantine? Yeah, all is good. We're all safe, we're all healthy, we're all well, which is the most important thing. Um, for those of your listeners who don't know, I've got three primary school age kids, so they're 10, 8 and 6. Uh -huh. So I've become a reluctant primary school teacher in the last <laughs> however many weeks. Um, my wife is a, a GP, so she's kind of out there at the front line and yeah. to work in her scrubs every day. But uh, no, we're fine. We're doing okay. Uh, and good to see things going in the right direction. And hopefully before too long, we can all get back to doing what we do best. Exactly. Here, yeah. Um, with everybody else, I go right back to the beginning, Steve. I, I, I frankly don't know the answers to any of these because I do my homework and I look it up online. Uh, and I have no idea when you first started music in your life whether it was piano or french horn or what how, how did music start for you that just shows how old i am because the internet doesn't go back that far actually, <laughs> um i've got i've got no kind of music particularly in the family my parents didn't play i don't come from a particularly musical uh, background my aunt was a pianist and organist of some considerable repute uh, not professionally but she taught um and i was sent off for piano lessons before i went to school so i was probably about four and a half when I started learning the piano and certainly while I was still at primary school I was playing organ for our local church so I must have had some kind of um, talent of some sort mm. uh, my, my piano teacher I, I, I my second piano teacher was an, an elderly spinster who lived with her sister uh, they must have both been in their 80s but as a teenage boy I was convinced they were like 110 um, <laughs> And, and she was of old school. She would wrap your knuckles with a ruler if you didn't play the right fingering, kind of old school. Yeah. And I was quite happy to sit at a piano and pick out a tune. And, and I think that's something you can't teach. And that used to get on her pick a little bit because I could just kind of, if somebody played something to me, I could play it back to you. So I obviously mm. had, you know, a, a kind of decent uh, ear and was able to improvise. She was, um, she drove an old uh, Morris Thousand, a split windscreen, green Morris Thousand, um, and she, I remember very vividly, she drove me to one of my um, piano exams. I think it was my grade seven piano yeah. exam. She drove me to, she had to, she had to sit on three or four cushions to be able to see over the steering wheel of this <laughs> Moggy Minor. 
uh, <laughs> and I did rather well. She used to enter students for uh, Trinity rather than Associate Board exams, yes. and I got a silver medal for my um, grade seven piano, which I always attribute to the fact that <laughs> the exam was a damn sight easier than the journey there. <laughs> I've always come, I've looked back on it and had a bit of a laugh about it ever since. Mm. And, I, and I think that kind of early musical thing uh, will no doubt revisit both of these things a little bit later on uh, during our chat Mike but um, my school teacher um, my music teacher at school uh, a gentleman called Fred Wilde used to organize visits to the Halle concerts at the, at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester mm. and those of us at school who were interested in going to these things used to pop along to the Thursday night concerts with the Halle uh, and, and I also used to listen to the radio um, I got in a little bit of trouble from my parents because I spent quite a large proportion of my kind of saved up uh, Christmas and birthday money on a, on a cassette recorder when I was, I don't know, 13 or something. Mm. And used to listen to broadcasts on the radio of Norrie Paramore and the MLO or the, the BBC, you know, Northern or Light Orchestra, whatever they were called, all this, all those kind of wonderful things. I, I kind of grew up listening to, in effect, Friday Night's Music Night. How yes. bizarre then that yeah. I've spent most of my uh, working career thus far with those two um, institutions very yes. much at the fore, having worked for Radio 2 uh, and the BC Conservative for, for, for 30 years and then latterly for the Halle. But Fred Wilde, who was my music master at school, um, was very, very encouraging. He obviously saw a little bit of something that I was able to do. I remember kind of playing piano in school assemblies and stuff and he would always put me forward things. And they had a, a, a pretty robust kind of peripatetic system in Lancashire back in those days. And Bob Aston, who was one of the horns in the then BBC Northern, the now BBC Phil, came to school and suggested that I perhaps leave the piano aside for a bit and try an orchestral instrument. Mm. And I'd never uh, done anything other than the piano until that stage. I was kind of quite a late developer, to be honest, because it was, I must have been 14, I think, before I took up the horn. And it was Bob who kind of got me then into, into the, the local youth orchestra scene, the Lancashire Schools uh, Symphony Orchestra. And uh, for anybody who grew up in the Northwest in the 70s and 80s, the name Malcolm Doley will mean uh, something to them. He was the sort of head of music for Lancashire Education Authority, but also conducted the, the Lancashire Schools Symphony Orchestra and was very much a kind of leading light um, sadly Malcolm passed away towards the end of last year I think about October last year and just before we went into lockdown a lot of us that had been in the LSSO in the 70s and 80s all met up for a kind of memorial celebration of his life which was mm. wonderful to kind of pick up from where we'd left off if you like some of us almost 40 years ago quite scarily but he made it completely sort of normal for us uh, on a Sunday to go and rehearse a Borzak Symphony or a Elgar Overture or whatever it happened to be. And the insight that he gave us into that kind of musical nuts and bolts, I, we just didn't know how lucky we were, frankly. I'm, I'm no, not sure no. how often that happens these days. I'm, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say, isn't it? And because of the, the lack of those music scenes, you know, they've gradually been eroded and chipped away over the last 25, 30 years. So that they they're have, I mean, I'm lucky, we're lucky in Birmingham. We, we still have one that functions, and I was involved with it for 11 or 12 years, conducting the school yeah. symphony orchestra. But a lot of them, you know, I've gone back to my old county of Kent, and the youth orchestra is not what it was when I left it, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, sorry, Which is a terrible shame. We, yeah. yeah, we did we did wonderful things. I mean, we made commercial recordings. 
we toured, we went to, to Sweden, we went to Austria, we did a fantastic British Council trip to Argentina. I played Mozart Horn Concerto in the Teatro Colón in Buenos yeah, Aires, which yeah. is something that will, you know, never, never leave me. Those kind of men, memories are, are absolutely extraordinary. And I kind of took those forward. It seemed like a sort of natural progression then when I went to the Royal College in the early 1980s. Uh, and then continued my sort of musical education from an orchestral point of view in the in the ECYO. I was there for a couple of years, um, so I, you know I consider myself very fortunate that I I was able to kind of uh, see at, at, at close hand all of those wonderful institutions and and yeah. and, and, and brilliant music making as, as a young person. And it was it was it, it felt completely normal. It, it never felt like I was. Uh, being thrust into anything. I never felt like I was having to be cajoled to do it. It was just what you did at a weekend and you went along and did these youth orchestra courses and, and then as a student and then into ECYO. I mean, we worked with wonderful conductors. Uh, Antal Durati came and did a course and his musical insights were just extraordinary. And, and as a young man, you kind of soak all that up and, 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 and take it all in. So yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of my sort of, from a, an education point of view, before I, before I became a, a professional musician. But probably because I was kind of late coming to the horn, mm -hmm. perhaps that narrowed my options. I know this is one of your uh, 10 questions that you ask about what a profession would you like to attempt? Yes. I'd kind of, I'd kind of given up on, on well, given up is the wrong word, but I'd kind of, um, put to a, a, a one side all the other kind of educational things um by the time i was in sixth form i'd, I'd made my mind up that this is what i wanted to do <laughs> sounds and familiar <laughs> I, 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 yeah I, I, and almost at the expense of everything else i mean i, I ended up with shocking animal results because i passed my music but that was about it yeah. um yeah. so i was kind of funneled down a, a career path uh, went to the rcm studied with two great horn teachers uh, the legendary Dougie Moore, who was at uh, the BBC for many years, and then the great Tim Brown, who I absolutely worshipped his playing. Yeah. And I got to play alongside him while he was in the BBC Symphony Orchestra, which, you know, was one of my early kind of career highlights. Um, and I eventually got a job in the BBC in 1985. Yes, I am that old. <laughs> uh, and I stayed there for 30 years. And I learned an enormous amount alongside great colleagues in a, an absolutely vast uh, musical landscape. We'll come back to the BBC Concert Orchestra in a minute. Um, but you've yeah. taken me now until you're in the early 20s, and um, at no point yet have we really talked about conducting. Uh, well, we haven't at all, in fact. Um, and, and seeing as you were a horn player who started fairly late, and up until that point was in the piano, I'm assuming conducting didn't really impact or something you did until your late teens. Would I be right? Uh, you are probably right. I did a little bit with uh, Youth Orchestra. I think one of the first times I ever conducted in public was Leonard Salzedo's Percussion Concerto <laughs> uh, in, in Preston Guildhall, uh, a venue that we always used to reckon had great acoustics for snooker. Um, <laughs> and we did, a, we did a tour to Sweden where I put together a group of players and we played through a couple of the Brandenburg Concertos. So there were, there were early signs that, yeah. you know, I was interested in putting those kind of things together and taking the initiative and doing all of that, which continued at the RCM uh, and although I went principally as a, as a horn player with second study piano I then started to do more and more things with the Student Association Orchestra and by the time I joined the postgrad uh, conducting scholars course and the three kind of luminaries there at the time were uh, Christopher Aidy, yes, uh, John yes. Forster and, and Norman Del Mar and, and Norman 
uh, as a former horn player himself, I think kind of took me under his wing a little bit. Um, and we used to have great times. His, his Sunday morning classes up at his house in Barnet, uh, along with the other kind of contemporaries in that, cla in that class, which were Graham Jenkins and Grant Llewellyn and myself. We were yeah. the kind of main three. Um, and, and we used to go up there on a Sunday morning and he'd sit in his music room with two grand pianos belly to belly and he'd pull off a score of whatever and you'd play the left hand of this and the right hand of that and you'd conduct and you'd read the clefs with the, you know, uh, it was, it was a, a wonderful insight into the yeah. kind of nuts and bolts uh, kind of thing. And, and Norman was terrific. I mean, he was a great enthusiast. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I learned a huge amount from him. Very similar to how... Um how it was with Jonathan, his son, because I learned with Jonathan at the Birmingham right, Conservatory okay. for a year, and he would do the same. He would get us to, if you weren't conducting, he'd get us to sit at the piano, and as a fiddle player, I only ever got horns and koronglay because I had to learn to transpose or clarinets and trumpets, you know. Um, I never got flutes <laughs> and violins, ever. The steep learning curve, but hey, it's yeah. invaluable. It's, ab yeah, it it's absolutely yeah. invaluable because it, it, it makes you kind of realise how all that nuts and bolts stuff does go together and, and it stood me in great stead ever since actually. Two great names as well from that period. I mean there's a little bit of difference in our ages but similar sort of growing up through the time when you know youth orchestras and music making was great in the UK. Chris Aidy, you know, conductor who conducted lots of youth orchestras. In fact I last saw him uh, it would be two years ago this coming summer um, and uh, yeah what what an amazing sort of he was an ex-player as well, an ex-fiddle player, and John Forster. He was ex-fiddle player. I think he was. Yeah. He was. I think he was in the Philharmonia, wasn't he? Was, was I, I, either that or the LPO. I can't remember. Um, but when I saw right. him two years ago, I, I was I was somewhere shadowing actually what he was doing, and uh, yeah, the stories that he told me about you know playing and who he was, who he played for, and all of that. But I, I remember him, you know when he came to Kent and conducted us, he was he was somebody we really looked forward to when he came because you know he just. Great, again, great insights about what it was like. The, the word you've touched on there is insight, and I think, I think that's absolutely invaluable. You've been a, uh, an orchestral player for a, a number of years, and you've seen kind of what a, a player needs from a conductor and, and what, a, what you think a conductor needs to give to a player, and, and, and I think that's absolutely invaluable. And I've always approached what I do from, from that, that side of the tracks, if you like, that, that I, I, I like to think that I know um, what is required from the orchestra musicians in order to get the best results. The other name you mentioned, John Forster, he worked in Kent, uh, where I was as a kid, and he conducted the Kent County Youth String Orchestra. But what, both what Chris Aidy and John Forster were perfect at just dealing with teenagers and enthusing them, but and not talking down to them or over them, or they just seemed to get on with them, and it would they would make the week or tour or whatever it was an enjoying enjoyable thing you know they were both brilliant at that that's absolutely key to it isn't it because you yeah. you, you you can't kind of browbeat somebody into doing something so yeah to, to be encouraging and to be to be positive and even if there's a criticism uh, proceed it with a with a compliment in order to to get something across which is also something and i think there is a connection that that todd hanley um used to do absolutely uh, brilliantly i was very fortunate that that todd uh, spent a little bit of time with me after I'd left um, full-time education and was a, was a player. Uh, Todd was absolutely brilliant at sort of explaining some of those things that nobody ever kind of explained to you, how to, how to detach yourself from what is going on around you. 
um, which was an absolutely invaluable lesson. And, and he was another one who, who absolutely knew how to draw the best out of his blend. Um, so we're, we get a job at the BBC Concert Orchestra, and I know because you know I'm an ex-professional too. That's it's tough, you know. That's that's many hours a week, uh, especially in the concert orchestra. That you know you you've got Friday nights, music nights, most weeks. Um, you've got all sorts of different recording things going on. How does conducting run alongside uh, your horn playing career at this time? Um, were you always conducting in the, uh, alongside or, or did it sort of flit in and out? To be honest, it did take a little bit of a back seat because as yeah. you say, a, a, a full-time orchestra job uh, for a BBC orchestra is, is pretty much all consuming. Uh, and by the time I'd uh, sat on the principal horn seat, um, you kind of need to keep match fit. And yeah. there's, a, a, there's, a, there's a certain element of, you know, there isn't time to go off and do various other bits and pieces and actually it was some time before I, I got back into it. I have the, the, the National Youth Orchestra of Canada to thank for that <laughs> because uh, in the 1990s I got a call uh, to say would I mind going out to do some coaching for the NYSC which I, I education is something that I've always been interested in, I've always taught, um, I've always uh, at any opportunity managed to find time to sort of uh, adjudicate competitions for young musicians or to uh, to spend some time with with youth ensembles because I think it's it's vital. It's absolutely important yeah. that 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 kind of lifeblood sort of keeps going, and we keep regenerating it, and we keep trying to infuse uh, young musicians and, and give them the encouragement. So that that's something I've always been interested in. So I got a call to go to Canada. Would I mind popping over to to Toronto for three weeks just to coach the the horns of the of the National Youth Orchestra of Canada, which was a joy. It was brilliant, and the first time I'd ever done that kind of thing at a sort of national level if you like mm, so yeah. I, I, I jumped at the opportunity and as I was there the, the guy who was the assistant conductor uh, had announced that he wasn't coming back the following year and, and uh, there was a, an opportunity and I, I kind of booked so forth I said look I'm really happy whatever I can do to help you know if you want to come and do some of that I'm really really happy to do that so mm. I did and I stayed for almost 10 years and that kind of rekindled my enthusiasm for for taking apart great pieces of music bit by bit and then bolting them back together again, <laughs> uh, and and over the course of a of a longish summer course before they headed off on their, their annual sort of summer tour, there was the opportunity to work with these great musicians, and although their age range was uh, slightly larger than perhaps youth orchestras would be here, they were fourteen to twenty eight, so oh, you wow. ended up with some yeah you ended up with some kind of young professionals in the mix. But actually, that worked really well because that kind of encouraged some of the younger guys to, you know, to raise their game and they could see what they could aspire to. Uh, and I, I, really fond memories of working over there in Canada. And, and I did it for, for almost 10 years. And then I started to pick up work back here in the UK. And I kind of had to let it go because the, the summer period when I first started off, you know, seasonal work of, of summer concerts and Christmas concerts, that was when I... I kind of started to 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 make make my mark here, as it were. Mm. So I, I I kind of reluctantly bade farewell to the to the NYOC, but really wonderful times with them. Working on you know big repertoire, they did Marla Symphonies and the Right Spring and Walton One and Shostakovich Ten and you know huge huge pieces. And and to have the opportunity to really get you 
teeth into something like that with with keen young players who, who wanted to learn and wanted to know. Uh, and it, it really kind of refired my interest in what I'd been studying as a postgraduate with, with Norman and, and and set me back on the road to going, yeah, you know what, this is this is me. Yeah. I, as an aside, um, I have been asked, you know, why do I work with the CBSA Youth Orchestra? Um, and why did I why did I work? Because I don't with Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra. And part of that is that you know you you do get to learn your repertoire so in depth because you're working with the kids for a week at a time, um, and you get to learn it bar by bar, note by note. Um, plus, there's this energy in the room from these people who are voracious to learn as much as possible. Um, and, yeah, and often with the CBSO Youth Orchestra, I do the first five or six days rehearsal and then hand it over to somebody else. And people say to me, you're nuts, what do you do that for? Well, you know, it's, it's a perfect chance to learn Mala 7 or Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances or whatever it is. But, you know, I can learn it on the Absolutely. And, and how rewarding to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and to be able, and you and I both know this as a player, to kind of pass on that sort of inside knowledge yes. uh, of, of how all that kind of works and, and how best to serve their, their hunger for that, for that knowledge, absolutely. Mm. Now, we've come to a point where our lives are very similar. Um, you, you've now rekindled your, uh, an interest in conducting. Um, I would have been about 32 or so when that started for me and I started conducting amateur orchestras I'm guessing we're around the same age now you're the about the same age when you you've started working with the uh, National Youth Orchestra of Canada how what how was your juggling work conducting and your day job with the BBC I know with the CBSO they were incredibly helpful and nice about it what was it like you know, going in and asking, can I have, can I have this weekend off because I've got to conduct a concert, I'd like to conduct a concert? They were absolutely fine about it. I mean, we have, yeah, like you say, we have a kind of similar background. Mm. The, the difference is now that the job uh, that you have as associate conductor of the CBSO was with the orchestra you were with for 20 yes. years, whereas the job I went to nearly eight years ago um, was with a different orchestra. Um, and actually, in a way, I think that kind of helped because when I was leaving my duties at the BBC to go and conduct, it was doing something that I wasn't being paid by the BBC to do. Yes. And although I go back to the BBC and conduct several of their orchestras on a regular basis, which is always lovely, um, actually I had a lot of support from my colleagues in the BBC and I did do uh, the occasional project with them too. Uh, mm. But that's, as you will know, it's a, it's a slightly strange beast <laughs> to stand up in front of your colleagues. I mean, yes. it's actually quite hard to do. It's it's akin to sort of standing up in front of your class as a primary school kid and, and reciting a poem or singing a song or whatever. If you can do it in front of your peers, you can do it anywhere. Yeah. Um, I kind of felt it was better for me to go off and do that kind of work elsewhere. And because of that, the BBC were very flexible about allowing me to, to, to be off. Yeah. And I think because I was in a, 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 a position of a, a principal chair with a co-principal who was very happy to to step up when I wasn't there, um, that kind of helped uh, enormously. And yeah, they were really, really supportive. Mm. Um, in the end, when I started my work uh, with the Halle, which uh, started back in 2012, uh, it got to the point where it quickly became clear to me that I had to make a decision yeah. as to whether I was going to throw myself at that full time. Mm. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing now is that my next question was going to be, what were the thought processes other than obviously one side of your work, you know, your conducting work now getting busier and busier and busier. You know, I, I always envisage that one day 
the conducting would rise, which means the playing would lower, and eventually I'd step off the the parapet of playing and jump onto the conducting as it was rising up. But it, it never quite happened like that. And there came a day when I had to make a decision. How did you come to that decision that day? I did make that decision, and it was yeah. quite hard. But actually, you've been very kind. I am a few <laughs> a few years older than you. Um, once I got to the point where I'd done, I could see the thirty year mark coming up in one section in one orchestra yes. i kind of thought you know what and, I, and i'm so driven by the creative process of what i now do yeah um that it was a bit of a no-brainer really i love the blank sheet of paper i love the what are we going to do here's a, a complete blank canvas we need to put something together and the end product of that is overhearing an audience member on the way out of the hall going, oh, I really enjoyed that concert. I now get to do that, not only on a one-off basis, but part of my job at the Halle is, is, is partly a, a, a planning role. Yeah. Um, because unlike your job at the CBSO as associate conductor, my kind of role at the Halle is more specifically geared to the, the sort of pops side of, of what the orchestra does. That's right. So yeah. I... I, I, I have a, a partly admin role with, a, with a, a member of the planning team who works solely on the pops to put those kind of concerts together. And, and, and that's the part of the job I enjoy the most, if I'm really honest. Mm. I mean, it's very nice to go out and do all these concerts and, and go out on the road and, and bring joy to thousands in an audience and all of that. But it's the putting the, the projects together that really gets my kind of artistic juices flowing. That's the bit that I really, really relish. And, you know, how do we make it uh, relevant? How do we make it uh, interesting for the players as much as the audiences? Because they don't want to churn out the same concerts every year. How do we make it that it's uh, financially viable, that it, it attracts enough of an audience? We need a broad kind of spread to get as, as wide a, a, an audience demographic into our concerts as we can and spread the word of, of what we do. So it, it's, it's all of those things together that... that that kind of get my uh, get my artistic juices going. That, yeah. that, that that's what that's that's the bit of the job that I I really relish and I really enjoy. So, the Halle uh, actually calls it the Halle Pops, which you know Birmingham doesn't have a. I mean, it has their Friday night series, which mm -hmm. I you know I do a few things here and there. Liverpool have a similar sort of thing. I don't know which night of the week, but nobody actually calls it a Pops thing. So I'm interested to know as the associate director in charge of the Halle Pops. How many concerts a year do you have to program? Do you conduct them all or do you farm some of them out to visiting conductors? You know, what's entailed with, with putting together a season of Halle Pops? This is something that was John Summers' idea, our uh, outgoing chief executive. He's uh, yeah. announced that he's, he's finishing this summer. Uh, and it's something that he and I chatted about, well, it's got to be eight, nine years ago. Uh, and basically he wanted my help in putting their kind of pops series together yeah. uh, you could have absolutely knocked me over with a feather when you came to my dressing room we were in i remember it absolutely as though it were yesterday we were in the sage in gateshead uh, with yeah. the halle uh, and his question to me was so what do we call your position then because i had absolutely <laughs> no idea that he was going to make it anything like as official as it has become and actually it's quite kind of typically forward-looking of John. Uh, he has a, a, a great uh, insight into the, the profession as a whole. And uh, I think he thought that, that, that perhaps the, the money-making side of what the Halle does uh, needed a, a, a hand on the tailor, as it were. Mm. And um, 
I think I think I'm right in saying we're the only certainly UK orchestra that has a, a kind of dedicated conductor that that is that is linked to their their their, their pops programs, mm. uh, and and that in itself was was particularly exciting for me. Having you know I said to you right at the beginning of this chat, grown up listening to the you know, the BBC Light Orchestra's on the radio and, and listening to Friday Night Music Night, and Sydney Torch and Nori Paramore and all these <laughs> wonderful luminaries to, to actually then be able to go, actually, I'm happy to curate a, a, a contribution to this style of music and this kind of music, which is, you know, it has such a huge following, um, was a was a no-brainer. It was, it was absolutely, I, you know, bit his hand off. Of course, yeah. I'd be delighted in, in whatever you end up deciding to call this position. Uh, I had no idea that they were going to kind of make it an, an, an official position within the within the orchestra. Um, we do somewhere in the region of thirty plus concerts per year, including our summer pops yeah. and our Christmas concerts, which kind of fall under the jurisdiction of the pops, of which I maybe do two thirds or so. Right. So um, there's a number that kind of get uh, passed out to, to particularly if it's a, a specific project, get passed out to, to guest conductors. Uh, we also, uh, there's uh, a number of those shows within a year that get handed over to the Halle's uh, assistant conductor. This is a, a program yes. that, that the Halle have been hugely successful with, right back to, I think Ed Gardner was the very first, but but there's been some wonderful, wonderful conductors that have come through the ranks. Uh, you know, even recently, in the likes of Jamie Phillips, uh, who you know very well. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I think I've got I think I've got two ex Halley assistants so far to come on the podcast, uh, Ed and Jonathan Haywood. He's been on as well. Jonathan Haywood, who yeah, just yeah. who just finished, uh, and 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 that's a it's a it's a superb experience. I mean, that's another John Summers initiative mm. uh, after Mark had, had joined the Halley as music director twenty years ago. In fact, it's just twenty years this week since he accepted the job, uh, and it has been. Uh, really kind of life-changing for so many of those uh, young conductors coming through so the 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 assistant conductors get uh, a look in on some of those kind of shows the ones that perhaps are more family orientated or some of our christmas concerts yeah. uh, otherwise the, otherwise the, <laughs> otherwise by january the band would be completely sick of the sight of me um <laughs> and, and it's really nice to be able to kind of uh, encourage and go through those programs and pass them on to people uh, if if there are specific projects that come in that, that need an external uh, conductor, then we're really happy to look at all of those. So uh, it, it's a big job in terms of uh, of admin. There's a lot of sourcing of material, of uh, liaising with our kind of library team to see what is available and what is out there. Uh, it's not as straightforward as you know as putting on a yeah. symphony program. There's a huge amount in kind of making sure you've got the right soloist and stuff's in the right key and all of that. So the, the, there's quite a lot of admin that comes with it, but I'm really happy to do that. Uh, and that's in turn actually taught me a, a huge amount about the business and how it all works and how it all runs uh, and how we create a successful and uh, financially viable pops series that we can get out to as broad an audience as possible. That's that's the chief idea. The next two topics are sort of linked with what you've been doing with the Halle and well throughout your career actually, but but mainly to do with that in the fact that you know you do have a rather large and varied repertoire um, because I remember playing for you on many many occasions in Birmingham before I retired and you, you know you conducted anything and everything so first of all to uh, to ask you you know 
uh, do you have any repertoire limits? But then secondly, because of the amount of repertoire that you get through in a year um, and the variety of repertoire, do you have a way of learning your scores that you stick to? Um, do you have a system for marking up? Do you mark in things, um, colours, etc.? Um, how do you do it all? Okay, I, I, <laughs> I had a really interesting conversation with Mark uh, Elder uh, not yeah. very long ago, who who said to me, "Oh, I'm 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 restricting myself to six new pieces a year." Uh, what about you, Steve? And I, and I was just out of <laughs> I just out of interest. Although, although obviously mine are, are in in miniature and uh, much more um, low brow, for want of a better word, because I obviously <laughs> do a lot of, of stuff that's kind of pops or film related or whatever. But I, yeah. I did do a little tot up for one year, um, just to kind of have a bit of a get back and mark, because he said, "Oh, I'm learning, I'm learning six new pieces a year." I, I got to over four hundred, then I stopped counting. <laughs> well, um, uh, that's why I asked you the question because I knew it would be something along those lines. I mean, I don't do as much pops as you, but you know, I do do a fair amount of film music concerts and, um, and yeah, I mean, the numbers that you get to in a year are staggering and you've just got to find a way of learning them quickly and efficiently and, yeah. There is a, a method that I've, I've often used uh, and I have to thank Todd Hanley uh, again for this um, yeah. because it was one of the questions that I asked him when he was very kindly kind of holding my hand through some of my uh, early concerts. Um, and his thought was that you should read a score through three times. Right. You speed read it to get the overall kind of bigger picture. Yeah. And then you go back and you read it again with the, with the, with the changes particularly in mind. So any particular changes of section or tempo changes. And then go back over it a third time and look at it in much greater detail. Mm. Um, I try not to listen to recordings of stuff. Although I have to confess, if it's short notice and you need to learn something really quickly, then it is kind of helpful. Uh, sometimes if it's a brand new arrangement of something, um, I often use uh, Paul Campbell at Studio Orchestrations, who's an absolutely brilliant arranger. Uh, very, very super talented guy. And he often does uh, stuff for us that, that, that we need either transcribing or, or brand new versions of something. Mm. And he'll sometimes quite helpfully include a sort of MP3 file of, of the sort of outline, uh, even if it's computer generated, just to kind of get an idea, which if you're up against it time-wise, sometimes is quite useful. I totally agree. Alistair Malloy does that with his arrangements of things. If Again, if you're up against it time-wise, he'll send you a, a Dropbox folder with computer mock-ups of things that he's arranged. And yeah, and when you, when you are time limited they can be so useful um, and especially it, if they're yeah. kind of if they're medleys of stuff and you know yeah, yeah 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 another and make it make it sound as natural as possible and mm. you know you, you're kind of taking things almost out of context for, for concerts such as that it can be really useful i sometimes sit at a piano and work out stuff um one of todd's comments always was that you should be able to look at the page and know in your head what it sounds like mm. uh, that was something that he was particularly good at and I think going back to one of the things I touched on earlier, because I can kind of hear something and then replicate it at the piano quite readily, um, I think that's sort of half of that skill. Um, and you and I both know that if, if you kind of look at something and something's not right, it should kind of jump off the page in red. Mm. Yes, I do mark up. That's partly because as I'm getting older, my eyesight's not so great. <laughs> and, and sometimes publishers uh, do put... Uh, um, time signatures and and changes in tempo in such a small font that I I often will kind of enlarge that uh, in order to just be absolutely sure. 
I'm not a big fan of doing things from memory, and that's not because I get through an enormous amount of repertoire in a year. Um, you know, having sat in a BBC concert orchestra for 30 years, I had no idea how many times I would have played the signature tune to Friday Night is Beauty Night, but I still wouldn't be happy just doing it without the dots there. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm not particularly comfortable, certainly, about um, anything that involves a soloist without the score, because I, I kind of feel that you need to let them be as free as possible, and it's your responsibility to, to be shepherd a little bit. Um, I occasionally do things from memory, but I, I admire those guys who can do it, you know, uh, even going back to National Youth Publisher Canada days, you know, if you'd spent a whole summer doing Marla Six, yes, I probably could have done Marla Six from memory, but I think I would rather have had the comfort blanket of the score there, even yeah. if you don't look at it in, in great detail. It's really interesting. One of the things the BBC used to do was they used to produce something called control scores. And the control scores used to go to the guy in the box who was mixing. Yeah. And actually, they ended up condensing a 100-page score into four pages of A4. And they just had the lead line on them. Yeah. And actually, for rehearsals to use the full score and then to use the control score for, for, for concerts, um, I used to find it actually quite useful because by that stage, you knew the stuff and you knew what was going on. Uh, I'm going to correct myself. You know before the first rehearsal what's going on. Mm. And uh, to actually use that control score without having to flip hundreds of pages over all the time was sometimes really, really useful. Just, yeah. just as a road, just as a roadmap. It's you know you know the stuff. Um, the preparation for me is absolutely key and vital and king. There, is, there is no uh, shortcut around that. You've got to do the prep before you even stand up at the first. Rehearsal in front of an orchestra because if you haven't done it, as you know as well as I do, they'll see through it in the first two bars. <laughs> exactly, um, and that's the, and another interesting point that um, you know, I remember talking to my wife about stopping playing. You know, and when you've been, I mean, I did both jobs. I was assistant conductor or associate conductor and sub principal second violin for nine years, um, and so I was constantly working. You know, when when that violin playing stopped, I think she thought that I might suddenly have a lot more free time. When you don't, you just end up actually studying during the day rather than up until three in the morning studying which is the only time I you could do, do it you, before you you fill you fill that time other ways yeah I mean your your mm. I say your situation is slightly different because I guess with the CBSO part of your deal was to kind of understudy what the chief conductor or yeah, occasionally yeah but do. I mean most of the time I was playing so you know yeah, there, there were, of course, the famous occasions when I jumped in at 90 minutes notice, but I, I didn't sit and like a normal assistant conductor, I didn't sit in the rehearsals because I was actually playing in them. So it was slightly sure. different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But obviously what I did, I've done in an orchestra that I wasn't a member of. I, I yeah. played with them um, on a few occasions uh, 30 years ago or so, but uh, never been a never been a member. But but how interesting that, that having listened to the BBC Concert Store on, on the radio as a young lad, and my first um, experience of live orchestra music was was with the Halle back in the well mid 70s. It was just after Jimmy Loughran had taken over, so I never saw Barbarolli in action with the Halle. But um, I reckon sort of mid 70s as a schoolboy going to to hear them live, and and they're the two orchestras that I've ended up spending most of my working life with. I don't want to preface one of the ten questions. I mean, I'm, what I'm what I'm sort of doing is giving you a chance to just. Let me know over your 30 years as a player, you would have seen literally tens of thousands, I'm guessing, or at least thousands of conductors conduct you. Any of those names 
that you remember vividly and thinking at the time, oh my God, that's brilliant. When I conduct, I might use that or steal that or um, rather, you know, rather than waiting till the 10 questions when you can give a shorter answer. But I just wondered, you know, over that time, who stood out for you? That's a really tough one because in an orchestra such as the, the BBC Concert Orchestra, there's such a wide uh, variety of repertoire yeah. Um, that so often it would be dependent on the repertoire who the conductor was. Um, uh, all I will say is that in that sort of privileged position, sat at the back of the orchestra, uh, what an absolutely invaluable grounding that was yeah. in learning what to do and what not to do. I don't mean that unkindly. <laughs> no, no, um, but, but, but that, that's come up time and time again. Is is uh, And I would say, and I do say to young conductors, go to as many rehearsals as you can, and not just the music director. Go to the Friday night lighter stuff. Go to the Sunday kids stuff, because sometimes you'll see some, you'll see a lot of what not to do, and you'll learn more from that than you will from the, the you know, the good ones. I couldn't agree more. Seeing what to do and what not to do, when when to leave alone, actually, and yeah, that's something yeah. that, that 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 we collectively as conductors, perhaps it's the hardest lesson to learn because yes. you know when you're learning the stuff on your own, you want to do as much as you can to be as helpful as possible. But actually, just leaving people to do their own thing and 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 shepherd what's going on around is often far more useful. Uh, and, and perhaps we're not the best at just letting go of that control and letting people do it. You know, yeah, I, that's the I, hard thing about yeah. standing. That's the hard thing about standing in front of you know eighty very intelligent musical minds, isn't it? That that you have to know when less is more. Trust, trust is the word. I, and I and this is by no. I'm just. It's literally popped into my head. Uh, trust. Uh, and the reason why I'm, I'm you keep repeating that word is the first time I saw you conduct, I was playing. And it was a freelance gig at Chatsworth House. And I oh, didn't, goodness me. didn't know you. And I was sitting in the first violins, which for me was bad enough because I was the second violinist. So I was suddenly having to learn all these bloody notes, you know, on the E string. I bet I didn't play on the E string. And, uh, but I remember sitting <laughs> in that rehearsal thinking, oh, this guy's good. And he's just trusting us to do it. And I thought, oh, this is great. Because, you know, you turn up on a lot of those sort of what we like to affectionately call muddy field dates. And sometimes the rehearsals, the rehearsals can be just awful. But I remember thinking, oh, this is a breeze. It's giving me time to learn some of these, these high notes. Um, and he's just trusting the orchestra. And I think that's, we both, maybe it's because of our backgrounds of playing in orchestras that we both, we do both trust the orchestra. And it's learning when it to is. trust I, them. You know, that's the important I, I think it is. I, I, and the other thing that I would kind of add to that, which I think is, is completely crucial, is the fact that the trust is two ways. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's all very well for a conductor to trust the players to do what they do to the best of their ability. And, you know, let's be honest, British musicians are amongst the best in the world. And even on those uh, kind of concerts where there's precious little rehearsal time, I know that I can trust those guys to go, yeah, we'll turn it out. But it also comes in reverse. Yeah. That they have to trust the guy on the box to give them what they need and what they want yes um and yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more having having sat in an orchestra for 30 years I, I without blowing my own trumpet i like <laughs> to think that i know what you know is required of, of me in in those in those kind of instances you know when, when there's not a, a load of rehearsal to kind of fine tune and do whatever uh it's it's down to the instinct of yes you know what i'm doing i know what you're doing and we'll all be fine it's it's yeah. eye contact it's it's that kind of communication without actually having to say anything, uh, the instinct. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the, it's the trust of the players to go. Yeah, we can do this. And 
Steve, it is 10 questions time, every conductor's favourite bit of the podcast. Um, so I will start with the usual first two questions. What? Oh, I didn't even drag them up, you fool. I, and it, much like you talking about memory, I, I still can't remember what the 10 questions are. And this, <laughs> this is this is episode 34 or 5 or something. So, <laughs> Oh, goodness me. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the first two. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? You know, I had to think about this for quite a long time. Uh, you very kindly sent the 10 questions slightly in advance and I did get a chance to read them. Uh, whether it's because of going on holiday, uh, I do love the sound of the, the waves lapping up against the seashore. Mm. It's just something, I've never lived by the sea. I've always lived kind of, you know, landlocked. But there's something about that that kind of makes you want to relax. Uh, it may be something to do with the fact that you associate it with being uh, on downtime and holidays with the family, I don't know. Uh, what noise do I hate? Uh, I've got a bit of a dentist phobia, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, as, uh, as a former brass player, I had some horrendous root canal work done on one of my front teeth, which to this day is still not resolved. So my noise that I hate would have to be uh, the dentist drill, I'm afraid, because it, it, it offends all the, the senses. Not only can you see it coming at you, you can hear it, but you can feel it and you can taste it and you can smell it. <laughs> so, so I'm afraid that's the, that's the one that I'm going to go with my pet hate is the dentist drill. And apologies to the lovely Mark, who's my dentist. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? My um, main holiday, uh, our family holiday for the last six years has been going to the French Alps to ski. Uh, we do try to go a week away in the summer in this country and sit by the beach and let the kids roll on the sand and whatever. But um, there's something, I'm not a particularly good skier. Uh, uh, my youngest child is six uh, and she's actually now a better uh, skier than I am. So that gives you a bit of an idea of, of my skiing prowess. Mm. But what I love about it is um, partly the weather. You're up at altitude, hopefully in the sun surrounded by glorious scenery, good food, good wine, good company. And actually, you're not able to think about anything else while mm. you're doing it. It takes you completely away from the daily grind. Uh, and for that reason, it's a, it's a great getaway. So there you go, 24 hours up the Alps. And, uh, and a, a chalet supper and far too much to eat and drink, please. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, I can add more than one. Well, yes, I, I you can, yes. I'd put Kleiber down. Um, I, I just love watching uh, old videos of Carlos Kleiber, who had uh, such a way of communicating with uh, orchestras. Mm. Uh, his his kind of, um, what's the best way of putting this? Um, with a minimum amount of effort, he yeah. could get the, the maximum amount of effect. Uh, it, it, he just had a wonderful way of being sort of rather balletic and, and humorous. And it's just the power of, of communication, which we were talking about earlier. If I could have more than one, I would, yeah. I would love to include uh, the late, great Todd Hanley. Mm. Uh, I had an enormous amount of respect for Todd. I worked with him a lot and he was very, very kind to me as I was a young uh, conductor who thought he knew far more than he did. Um, Todd had got a wonderful way of making players want to give of their best that's a really awkward way of putting it whenever i played for todd i always wanted it to be good for him if you know mm. what i mean yeah and he just he just had a way of encouraging and making people want to sit up and give of give of their best um you can't bottle it you can't 
quantify it but actually he was absolutely brilliant at that and his rehearsal technique and his way of getting the results that he wanted he was always loyal to the music it wasn't about him it was about what was on the page and recreating what the composer wanted and i just respected that hugely he was just brilliant i played for him towards the end of his life i i didn't think i ever would and then he, he came and did a couple of things with the cbso and i thoroughly enjoyed playing for him um and he was obviously he was obviously coming towards the end of his life. He could barely walk, um, but yeah, his manner and his and the way he rehearsed and he had, it was always a ready quip and a, and a solid, you know, good sense of humour. I really enjoyed it. The and quips I, are great. Yeah, it made me wish I'd I'd, um, I'd played for him a lot earlier on in my life. The the quips were great. I I remember because he was he was principal guest of the BBC Conservatory for a while, which is when we got to know each other particularly well. And at the time, uh, I was doing quite a bit of work as a player with the LSO. Yeah. And we did the Gramophone Awards live uh, at the Barbican. And he was one of the conductors that was kind of wheeled out to do his party piece. Right. And there were some great, there were some great names. Uh, you know, Shai was there and uh, the late, bless him, Richard Hickox was there. And, mm. and all, these, all these, you know, fantastic names being wheeled out onto the podium to do their... A party piece and 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 Todd came out to do Tintagel. Oh wow! And he yeah. stood up in he, he stood up in front of the LSO for what had been the first time in a long number of years, and his opening self-deprecating line was, "I bet some of you thought I was dead." <laughs> it was absolutely. It was just brilliant because it broke the ice and everybody kind of breathed a sigh of relief and went, "Oh my God, yeah, great, we're just going to get to play," and they play their pants off for him. It was mm. just. Fabulous. He always had a knack of making people feel at ease and always got a way of making people want to play their best for him. And, and, and I, yeah, I just respect that so much. Brilliant. Who would be a favourite current conductor? Oh, you see, I've cheated a little bit here because he is a current conductor because he's still with us, but actually he announced his retirement not that long ago. And that would be the great Bernard Heiting. Hmm. Um, Bernard was one of those, uh, I, again, I had the privilege of, of being conducted by him on a number of occasions. And again, he wasn't showy. It wasn't uh, about him. It was all about the music. But what always particularly uh, impressed me about him was the way he was able to get a sound from an orchestra. Mm. And, and, you know, that's the holy grail for us, isn't it? That's, that's the thing. Yeah. How do you, by relatively modest and minimal body movements, because he wasn't a, you know, showy conductor by any stretch of the imagination, but the way he was able to manipulate all those players to get a particular sound was quite magical. Mm. Um, so he has to be one of my all-time current favourites. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I, I, I must confess, I, 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 I do think long and hard about this. Um, and I've come up with one that's pretty left field in the end. Uh, <laughs> Good, I like left field. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I, I don't know whether the name Vladimir Tarnopolsky would, would slip off your tongue. No. Perhaps that easily. Uh, he's a Russian composer who I think is still alive. I would imagine he's probably a wee bit older than me, so maybe mid-60s. Um, but a number of years ago, probably heading for 20 years ago, certainly 16, 17 years ago, he wrote uh, a version of Cinderella, but based on the Roald Dahl 
um, version of Cinderella, which is a, a little bit more macabre than the than the kids' fairy tale that we perhaps know best. Um, so it's a. I think he describes it as a. Is it a cantata? I'm not sure how he kind of describes that. It's it's a huge piece of music, which we programmed with Halle uh, to coincide with the Roald Dahl centenary. Mm. It's got huge forces, including a, an orchestra, a chamber ensemble. Uh, a group of uh, younger players, a sort of uh, youth orchestra, go alongside the main parts, uh, a children's choir and uh, actors who take part of the main characters, uh, mm. including the Ugly Sisters and, uh, you know, or, or, you, you know the story of Cinderella. Yes. But it was a hugely complex piece and we did it staged at the Bridgewater Hall with the Halle and the Halle Children's Choir who learnt the whole thing from memory. So there's the added kind of stress of, of shepherding a, a 80, 90 piece choir who have all got this thing absolutely off, off the page. Uh, young actors, we often collaborate with the Manchester Metropolitan University who do a, a wonderful performing arts course. So we had half a dozen students taking the part of the, the Ugly Sisters and the narrator and Cinderella and the Prince. Um, but the combination of all that and what is actually quite a complex score uh, I attribute to some of my grey hairs, frankly. But it was great fun, but actually really hard to pull off on a live show. Uh, when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I would have to go with, and, and this is because I'm very, very fortunate. I live in the middle of nowhere. We live at the end of a lane with no passing traffic. So um, the constant noise of traffic, uh, mm. and when you travel anywhere, that, that has to be my kind of biggest bugbear really so um it would either be earplugs or, or noise cancelling headphones so that i can kind of shut myself off from the rest of the hubbub what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor i don't know whether this, <laughs> i don't know if this applies to being a conductor or this is just being an adult <laughs> uh, can you can you be both uh, simultaneously who knows um i'm not sure it's the paperwork uh, i don't mean scores i mean the rest of it all yeah. Um, the, the, you know, sending out the invoices and following up on all of that kind of gubbins. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, of the office paperwork. I would have to leave that behind in my room 101, I'm afraid. I agree. Uh, you know, endless emails. Um, can you, can you look at this program that's coming from somewhere and there's 11 pieces on it and can you do all of that? Can you look? And then you send it back and then five minutes later that, you know, whilst you're then doing another bit of work, they send, it's a, you're constantly juggling things that seemingly that yeah, nothing or very little to do with what you should be doing. Um, yeah. Oh, it's, it is long, tiresome stuff. It's, it is long, tiresome stuff. I'm thinking more about the sort of quarterly VAT returns and petrol receipts and all of that <laughs> yeah. kind of really, really, really mind-numbing stuff. You know, mm. if, if it's to do with the programme, I'm kind of not bothered really because the end result is something that, you know, hopefully I shall be proud of and want to be involved in. But yeah, it's all the, it's all the mundane stuff that goes with, with paperwork and invoices and all that kind of gubbins. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, by the time I decided I was going to be a professional musician, I'd kind of gone at it at the expense of absolutely everything else. I've always been a, a, a big follower of motorsport. Uh, I'm an avid uh, watcher of Formula One races. Uh, I'm not necessarily putting myself up here for being an F1 driver, but uh, maybe something uh, related to, to motorsport is perhaps something I might have an interest in. It's funny, you know, I sat and I was sitting the other day having my breakfast, flicking around the TV channels, and uh, and was watching some old game of cricket on Sky because of course there's no cricket on at the moment. And I thought yeah. to myself, 
well, if I don't get back to conduct, maybe I could, you know, go and train to be an umpire. Um, <laughs> you know, something something I could go and do the, um, later in life. And uh, yeah, I th it's amazing how sports and conductors that seem to be quite a big correlation. You're not, you're not the first person to talk about F1. Uh, I'm not the first person oh, really? to talk right. about cricket. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's funny, isn't it? That you know we have this sort of love of sports. Is it the thrill of the live event? Is it the oh, yeah, the maybe. competitive element, or is it the you know the the the, the fear? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, um, yeah I, 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 it, it caused me to think a lot. I have to say that question. That yeah. um, I'm not sure what what else I would or indeed uh, could do. Uh, my wife. Uh, we met when she was a, a, a freelance musician. She's now a, a doctor. Yeah. So she has actually done the whole what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? And yes. she's actually done it. Uh, and that's something I'm, I'm hugely proud of her for, for having kind of um, thrown a six and started again, if you see what I mean. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I've just mentioned Charlie, uh, my wife, she makes a mean curry. Um, in fact, we had a curry night only last night, and absolutely terrific it was too. Uh, so I think my final choice of meal would be one of her homemade curries. Uh, what would the drink be? I'm, well, you see, I'm, I'm heading back to my, my stereotype as a former brass player here, because I do like a beer. Yeah. So it would, be, it would be an IPA or a traditional English bitter uh, and a curry. There you go. I'm, I'm brass player through and through, really, then, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to say, as a string player, I, you know, it, I wouldn't mind if somebody put down a curry and a nice pint of bitter in front of me either. So, um, there you go. Yeah, you're not Simple alone. pleasures, Mike. Simple uh, pleasures. That's what absolutely. it's all about, isn't it? And it's been a simple pleasure to talk to you, Steve. It really has. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope to see you very, very, very soon. Thank you very much. Uh, I had a quick flick through the website. Uh, I've, I've listened to a few of your... Uh, podcast but having seen the list of people that you have on your uh, podcasts now I'm uh, I'm really touched and and uh, thrilled to be part of such illustrious company so uh, Mike it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, you stay safe and thank you very very much A Mike on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson Next time, I talk to a young American conductor who is making quite a name for himself both in the US and Europe. Not only has he been associate conductor of the Minnesota Orchestra, he's also found time to set up his own scholarship initiative. Until then, bye bye.